848-6767, extension 626, or send an email to election at kpfa.org. Do your part for diversity and democracy at KPFA. You're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and stay tuned for Jennifer Stone and Public Recover. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today is Tuesday, September 14th, 2004. Now, Culture Vultures. Uh, get out there and celebrate Banned Books Week, folks. You have to elect to read a banned book. Uh, you don't have to. Of course you don't have to. What an authoritarian thought. No, no. Uh, what you must do is you must look at the list and see how you feel about it. Yes, because this is all about intellectual freedom. Um... Uh, the American Library Association is urging us to elect to read a banned book in honor of this year's Banned Books Week. That's September 25 to October 2, okay? The 25th to the 2nd. Of course, if you like, you can read a banned book any old time. Uh, now, this week has been observed since 1982. It's an annual event, and of course... It's a little heads up, you know. We're not supposed to take for granted our precious freedom to read, to think. <laughs> yes. Bookstores and libraries are, what is here, it says, getting out the vote, they're calling it. Getting out the vote, that is, electing to read banned books. They have displays and readings ranging from the Bible uh, and Little Red Riding Hood to John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, books that have been banned and threatened throughout history. Last night I was watching Carl Dreyer's Day of Wrath, all about witchcraft and uh, how we displace evil onto women. And there's a scene where the woman uh, asks her parson husband if she may read aloud from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and she reads a few passages and... The parson's mother shuts her up. Stabbed me in the heart. Yes, indeed. Um, Day of Wrath was on the Turner Classics the other night, and I taped it. Uh, it's an absolutely blood-curdling film about witchcraft. I am surprised at... Uh, well, it gave me nightmares. I didn't think I could do that anymore, be so upset by 
a film, Carl Dreyer always has that effect on me, you know, his Joan of Arc, especially, I think, it's a particular nightmare, that nightmare of going into the flames. Perhaps I had um, a witch in my past, in my race memory, somewhere back there. Yes, there was some burning. Anyway, back to these books. Let's see what's happening. Uh, if there are any local events, I'll tell you next week. Uh, each year, the American Library Association, its Office for Intellectual Freedom, receives hundreds of reports on books and other materials that have been challenged, so-called, by people. Um, people ask that these books be removed from school or library shelves. Okay, in 2003, the Office for Intellectual Freedom received reports on, well, let's see, their challenges, numbers 458. 458. <laughs> these are formal written complaints filed with a library or a school requesting that the materials be removed because of content or appropriateness. Okay, topping the list in 2003 was Phyllis Reynolds' Naylor, N-A-Y-L-O-R, Alice series. Um, okay, the Alice series drew complaints about uh, the book's sexual content. It ranks number 10 on the most challenged books list of the 1990s. It ended the four-year reign of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, I think that was about witchcraft, right? Yeah. Well, paganism. I think the Harry Potter books were pretty pagan. Anyway, rounding out the top five most challenged books in 2003 were John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men for Offensive Language, um, Michael A. Uh, Bella Stiles, I can't, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. His name is spelled B E L L. E-S-I-L-E-S. -E uh, Arming America, the origins of a national gun culture. Oh, well, <laughs> can't have that. Okay, and Walter Dean Myers' uh, Fallen Angels for Racism, Sexual Content, Offensive Language, Drugs, and Violence. Anyway, let's see. The challenges in recent years, 63% were lodged by a parent. Parents are upset. Okay. And the complaints went 41% to school libraries, 33% to uh, schools, 18% to public libraries. Dear, dear, dear. Mm -hmm. Off the list in 2003, after several years on, were the books I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, that one for sexual content, racism, offensive language, violence, and being unsuited to age group. Also, Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn for Racism, Insensitivity, and Offensive Language. It's very interesting uh, what we do to history, why we are unable to uh, relate to the past. We get it all confused. Anyway, that is a topic for an entire show. If you want to download any of the artwork and get information on Banned Books Week, please visit their uh, Website. It's, uh, they've got a press kit, press kit at www.ala.org slash books with two B's. I'll repeat that. It's on a website, www.ala.org.
that's for American Library Association, dot org slash B-B-O-O-K-S. I hope that's not a misprint here in front of me. Uh, two Bs, try it with two and try it with one. Anyway, uh, check it out. And if you're stuck, just call your local library and ask what's going down. Uh, you know how it is. One year it's um, Alice Walker. I remember the brouhaha over the color purple. And then uh, I wondered what they did with her book, um, Possessing the Secret of Joy. That's about female genital mutilation. Toni Morrison's Sula uh, once even ran afoul of the censors. Ah, uh, uh, well... Everything seems to bug somebody, somewhere. When I was growing up, it was merely catcher in the rye. (laughs) Actually, that's a pretty dangerous book when I think about it. Talk about nihilism. Uh, Anyway, today, this week, all week, it's been hell and high water, war and hurricanes, storm and stress. All the natural and unnatural shocks that flesh is heir to. People often compare and contrast weather and war. Uh, not me. I never do that. Uh, as I experience storms, even earthquakes, the natural world is just doing its thing, just shrugging, you know, and... Uh, Uh, Yes, war, as a little friend of mine says, yes, she says, but that's on purpose. They were doing it deliberately. (laughs) Yes. God, I suppose, has no purpose, according to my young friend. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I tried to tell her about the metaphor about Zeus with the lightning rod, you know, as if it were a deliberate act. Uh, And then we thought about it and we decided that... uh, Mankind was just jealous, yes. He wanted to be the one that um, threw the lightning rod, the weapon of mass destruction, the the thing that smashes everything, whacks everything. Uh, now, whether you study these things, uh, whether you study science or the ancient gods, the metaphors, uh, our earth is a magnificent mystery. Beautiful beyond belief, yes. Aesthetics is the mother of ethics. That's what they told me when I was a child. They told me that the earth was more violent. Nature herself was more ferocious and destructive than any war could ever be. (laughs) So far, of course, science is always making wonderful improvements and things, and some people say that we're so jealous of nature, of, uh, what is it, uh, of God. We're so competitive that these weapons of mass destruction are growing ever more lethal, uh, more lethal than anything Mother Nature could devise. I think of Robert Oppenheimer back in the 1940s. You know, he had that atomic bomb thing. He had that little pipe in his pork pie hat, uh, He quoted the ancient text, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. We call that the God complex. I'm fascinated by primate grandiosity, this notion that man can be God or God-like. I don't think psychology has explained this uh, 
we can't figure ourselves out. We're certainly trying, gosh knows, gosh knows we try. Trying to understand the species, the central nervous system, all these tricks we play. We explore our primal fears. We look at evolution and says, well, yeah, some scientist says that's the source of all these drives, you know. We're trying to uh, control the world. Uh, of course, like everything else, all that stuff's just a quagmire, my favorite word, quagmire. Seems to me that we are stuck in a quagmire, a muddy swamp of uh, confused thought caught in our own toxic trap. Consciousness seems to be killing us, yes. <laughs> our, our greatest skills may be the things that do us in. I call this tech-noir. Of course, there are those who know better, who know that technology is um, not an end, but a means. These are the wise ones, the ones who recognize the gift, the gift of life, of nature, of things, simply as they are. But that's such an ordinary concept, you know, gratitude, joy in existence, life for its own sake. Um, it seems kind of retro. Last Sunday, I was watching my favorite TV series, Six Feet Under, on HBO, and uh, it's all about existential concepts, you know. It takes place in a funeral home. Yes, in the midst of life, we are in death. They live over the, the funeral home. Uh, the writers of the show try to find ways to demonstrate the value of life. You know, they, they make fun of the existential, the, oh, you know, sacred, schmacred, um, new age nonsense. But they do try to tell us that we should be grateful to be alive. You know, not in a basement in Bosnia, not uh, suffering horribly. Oh, yes. Last Sunday's episode, one of the characters is suffering uh, post-traumatic stress. He's had a hideous encounter with a sadistic criminal who tortured him. And he goes to visit the man in prison in an effort to what he says, uh, what he calls getting his balls back. He discovers there the banal quality of evil, the monster that is his nightmare, this uh, hideous young man, sadistic child, uh, asks why he, David, why, why didn't he bring him anything? And then he even asks him to come back to visit um, It's lonely. Who wrote that the evil in men is just a kind of underdevelopment? Yes, he's trapped, stuck in some stage of development. He's a child whose deepest needs were not met at an early stage somewhere along the way. You know what happens to an infant who is not nurtured at a critical point? Parent didn't bring him anything. You know... If we don't get love, well, when that child is an adult, the rage can kill us all. And look around the world today and think of all the children who aren't getting what any human being needs. In the play, in the show, David, the character, anguishes. In a room alone, the rain is streaming down, and he's looking out the windows. His father appears. This character 
is a phantom or ghost. Uh, he died in the opening episode, but he wanders around um, giving advice, you know, the way our parents do. They hover over us all our lives. Mine have been gone for half a century, but they still turn up. Whenever they have something to say, David's father tells him to stop whining, stop holding on to his pain, you know, as if it was worth something, as if it were valuable, you know, not worth a thing. And David insists that things aren't so simple. His father suggests that, well, just maybe they are. Six Feet Under is all very zen. Uh, I find it fascinating. I thought I was beginning to tire of it, but this fourth season, uh, the, each character has a uh, narrative thread that holds me. Uh, what it's trying to demonstrate, or what the writers are after, is uh, the mutability theme. They're illustrating the ways in which death or non-being forces us to love life to ecstatically embrace you know whatever we get even pain Woody Allen jokes about that you remember one of his films uh, I think it's Annie Hall one of the women in a restaurant yes she says well the food at this place is perfectly awful and her friend answers yes and such small portions <laughs> it's awful, yes, and it's too little. What is it? It's Molly Bloom, not Molly Bloom. Um, uh, a character in Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, Polly Garter. She's scrubbing the floors for the ladies' dance, and she's a uh, woman of the town. She's in the underclass, and there she is scrubbing the floors, and she says. Isn't life a terrible thing? Thank God. Some of the philosophers tell us it's better to detach from life, to be, um, what is it, removed from feelings and emotions, you know. Uh, they say that desire is what causes us suffering. I've always wondered whether it is possible to choose not to suffer, Certainly cannot avoid pain. Uh, disease, death are inevitable. But some philosophers think it is possible to choose whether or not we suffer from these ills. Uh, I think that's a tough one. You can't tell that to a mother whose child is killed before her eyes or someone dying in agony. Um, I think it is a rather, rather frivolous idea, but... Obviously, we can choose not to suffer from neurotic ills. Um, who is it said? I think Paul Tillich, he said, that neurosis is an attempt at non-being. Yes, it's a way of non-being in order to avoid being. That goes round and round and round. Um, as Lucy Van Pelt said in the Peanut Strip, remember she had that uh, uh, little lemonade stand, uh, but she also dispensed psychiatric advice for five cents. And she would just say, snap out of it, five cents, please. That's my advice, right? What still confuses me, continues to confuse me year after year, is our human appetite for pain and suffering, you know. 
our ability to get up and go out there <laughs> and have another war, more blood, more pain. Uh, it seems a primal need. Um, it seems as if we're competing with nature for power over life and death. We demand this tragedy. Our tragic sense has to be stimulated. Old Sigmund Freud, he was the poet. You know, he first suggested that our death wish might be as powerful as our wish to live, to procreate. Uh, that Thanatos might be as powerful as Eros. I think he was on to something. Freud got it wrong, of course, but he got it. Uh, there's something deep down in that old reptilian brain stem. Somehow, the human psyche, with its shadow self, tries to subdue its fear of death by pursuing the death of others. The great philosopher Hegel, he had this line, I put it on the icebox for years, what was it? He said, each consciousness pursues the death of the other. I put it on the icebox because I thought, oh, that's why marriages don't work. You know, sooner or later, other people aren't us. They don't agree with us. And there's some kind of attrition going on there. <laughs> now, all this may be expressed metaphorically. Then we get art. That's great. I love metaphors. Each generation comes along and it rewrites the script given by the parent generation Yes, that's our duty. We must devour our elders, bury the dead, change, evolve. It's so exciting, especially, you know, in the arts, in thought, in writing. Bury all the old poems and dreams. Um, crack all the old forms and feelings. And then our descendants, you know, can dig them up and discover them again, make them new again, and have them reborn. I mean, even Shakespeare can evolve. <laughs> Art, yes, the arts. That's our best effort to compete with God, with nature, with the natural world. It's our struggle to become immortal or fully mortal, perhaps. Uh, I mean, we all know that um, mass murderers can't compete with artists, you know. Napoleon will fade a lot faster than Beethoven. Thought, I always tell myself, thought is thicker than blood. Self-consciousness, self-consciousness is evolving. I am convinced that in some sense we are growing, changing, getting wiser. Of course, you know, beauty is a constant, aesthetics. Um, those prehistoric cave paintings, those are as beautiful as any modern art today. We don't need to produce more or better art, no, only wiser art. Growth for its own sake is the morality of a cancer cell. What our species needs is heightened perception. Yes, yes, we don't need another mountain. Love is what we need. Perception and imagination. And it all begins in childhood. Leave no child alone. That's my directive. A civilized, enlightened society leaves no child alone to suffer. That old uh, anthropologist Margaret Mead, she told us it was the children in Bali who were the uh, the least warlike and the most artistic. 
the most creative. They are carried in a sling at the breast for the first three years, she said. Of course, Indonesia ain't what it used to be. My students would say, well, that's okay. But what about all those kids, those kids in Bali, those uh, gentle ones? What happens when they meet the children that Margaret Mead labeled the most warlike? Uh, Margaret Mead um, picked the Ashanti. She said they were the toughest, given only um, enough food, given the breast only long enough to stay alive, and then thrown on the ground. No cuddling. Of course, I think it's time to say that things can change. Human nature, although it's infinitely variable, it is a constant. But human behavior, human behavior can be conditioned by circumstances. Nothing refines us like affection, and children can be tenderized. Tenderized, yes. No matter what we hear, you know, about girly men and these <laughs> today's limp dick liberals, yes, the new age people, the lovers of the world. There's growing evidence that life is stronger than death. Yes, that girly men can be stronger than macho men, that love is tougher than hate, that Eros trumps Thanatos. In these dark, dark times, sad days, when violent men are competing with nature to be the most destructive force on earth, we notice that the culture of compassion is making a curious progress. It's under the surface of things. Of course, the culture of cruelty gets all the press, all the media minding, yes. If it bleeds, it leads, yes, so let us fly away to where the press does not depress us every day. Let us imagine a blue, blue world, a, a pale world. Yes, I love that blue and green states. Uh -huh. A world in which we leave no child alone, leave no one alone to grow up in fear or to suffer the humiliations which break the spirit. And that includes the child within each one of us. You know, that, that inner child that therapists are always talking about. That inner child who can become a Nazi or a Nazarene on bad days. I call my inner Nazi the goose girl, yes. She's growing up to be mean as the devil, goose-stepping all over the feelings of others. Of course, she does that in the reaction, in a reaction, you know, to hurt feelings of her own. She's a know-it-all. But you know, we all practice the first rule. That's the first rule you learn in kindergarten. No hitting. No first strike. Just be grateful to be in the game Still trying, still hanging in there. <laughs> As Samuel Beckett says, quote, You must try again, fail again, fail better. This has been Jennifer Stone, and I will be back on the air on Thursday uh, at 8.20. Till then... Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Happy
Global warming, working to send he who must not be named back to Crawford. Need a break from what's going on? Take the time out for a night of enjoyment. Join the KPFA community with a night out at the old ball game. Oakland A's play the Texas Rangers on Wednesday, September 15th at 7.05 p.m. The game promises the excitement of two teams in the midst of the American League West pennant race as the season winds down to a close. This is a fundraising event for KPFA sponsored by your KPFA local station board. Tickets are $30 and are in Section 107 at the Oakland Coliseum. Credit card required for a payment or available at KPFA. Come on down to 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Berkeley. For more information, please call 510-848-6767, extension 468. War is not the answer. 